0: Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. This morning's reading is from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Good morning. Dasani changed their bottles. They're not as sturdy as they used to be. It really bugged me when they changed. I don't know. Sorry. All right. There we go. We are continuing this morning in, uh, does that count as like an endorsement or something? It's kind of an anti-endorsement. We are continuing this morning in our study through 1 John. Uh, We are in chapter 5 now, we just have two more weeks after this morning. Thank you, Kurt, for reading, worship team for leading us. Uh, Let's pray, let's ask for God's help with this uh, short but powerful passage. Let's ask, uh, Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here today uh, and uh, giving us the opportunity to worship together, whether online or here in the room. Uh, we would uh, just look to you now. We pray that you will use the, uh, the word to change our lives and whether, whatever that looks like, each of us is in you know, different places here this morning, uh, but we all desperately need you and we desperately need your word. And so uh, we would just ask now, we just submit ourselves to you, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each and every one of our hearts be uh, pleasing in your sight for your purposes. it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last fall, a professor at the University of Tennessee uh, decided to test something. He decided to test whether his students actually read the syllabus that he passes out at the beginning of the semester. Uh, now, the, the syllabus, for those of us who've spent a little while since we've been out of school, that's uh, that's basically everything you need to know for the class, right? So the syllabus is that uh, guide to the course. It's got all the policies and the expectations and uh, everything you need to know about the class, what you got to do to pass and all the rest. And so it's pretty important. You know, hey, college students, pro tip, uh, your syllabus is pretty, pretty important. And so he, he wanted to see if his students were actually reading this thing. So he ran a little experiment. He, he took a $50 bill, and he put it in a locker on the university campus. It was kind of a public locker. He put it in a locker, put a combination on it. $50 bill sitting there in this locker that anybody could get to. And then in his syllabus, he inserted a sentence that told about this $50 bill, basically. And it was kind of in the middle of a paragraph about like, when you could make up classes and when you couldn't and that sort of thing. And in the middle of that paragraph, he inserted this statement, free to the first two claims, locker 147. And then he gave the combination to the locker. Uh, there were 71 students in his class and nobody... Nobody claimed the $50. He waited the whole semester. He went and he checked at the end of the semester and and, uh, there was the $50 still sitting there in the locker. None of his students had read the syllabus carefully enough. Maybe they'd paged through it or skimmed through it, but none of them had read it carefully enough to find those instructions for the $50. I thought of that professor this week as I was studying this text, the paragraph in front of us. And the reason I thought of him is that this is one of those passages where it really helps us to read carefully. There's some really rich stuff in here, but we've got to read it carefully. Uh, as I said, we're uh, getting close to the end of this series. We're moving now into the last chapter, chapter five. We've just got three more weeks, including today. And and so John's, you know, he's, he's, he's writing with intention and so he's building now toward his conclusion and he comes back he comes back here in this chapter to one of the major themes of the letter and i've been kind of making the case that john has three or four themes that he weaves in throughout the book and he comes back to one of the big ones we've been talking about through the letter it's this idea of believing in jesus we need to believe It's one of the major themes of 1 John, and and not just kind of in a vague sort of a way, but we need to believe the truth about Jesus. We need to believe, uh, you might remember that that idea of the apostolic witness, which for us is the Scriptures, and so we need to believe what the Scriptures teach about Jesus. It's something John keeps coming back to in this letter, and he comes back to it again now. And and that's where he he goes, right? That's where he goes in verse 1. He says, everyone who believes, and it's the noun form of the word to put your faith in something, everyone who believes that Jesus, Jesus is the Christ, he says. And so he goes there. We need to believe, we need to have our faith in Jesus, that he is our Savior, specifically. And he's talked about this in different ways along the way in the letter. uh, Chapter 2, verse 2 might be the most notable one. Uh, There at the beginning of chapter 2, he talked about how Jesus is the one who deals with our sins, You remember he said Jesus is the propitiation, which is a fancy word for sacrifice. He's the atoning sacrifice, the effective sacrifice for our sins. He died in our place, uh, and not just in our place, but for the sins of the whole world, John says in chapter 2, verse 2, which is to say Jesus is the only game in town. So when he says here in chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, he's he's linking us back to these things he's already said in the letter. If you want to be free from your sin, if you want to live forever uh, in heaven, then you need to believe in Jesus. That's where he starts there in verse 1. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I, I want to talk about belief in Jesus, but I also want to connect it to another thread that we've been following through this book. I want to come back to joy And if you've been here for a lot of this series, you don't even have to be here for all of the weeks, but if you've been here for many of the weeks, you you will remember I I actually made the case in the first sermon in this series that John's reason for writing the letter, kind of his big-picture purpose, is to help you and me walk and live in joy. And he actually said that back in uh, chapter 1, verse 4. It's the introduction to the letter. And he says in verse 4, "...we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete." Uh, our joy or your joy. He's kind of wrapping the readers in with them. Uh, I'm, the reason I'm writing this letter, John says, back in the first paragraph of the whole, of the whole thing, is joy. The purpose of this letter is joy. And, and I haven't done it every single week. It might have become a little tedious if I did it every week, but I've been trying along the way to show this connection to joy. God wants us to grow in our joy, and John wants us to grow in our joy, which is why he, he writes this letter. And I think it's, it's helpful to come back to that now here as we're talking about belief in Jesus because the two are intertwined. Our belief in Jesus leads to joy. It is the, it, it's the way we access this joy. So that's kind of the main idea today. Um, our, could you please, there we go, thank you. Believing in Jesus leads to lasting joy. Uh, he doesn't use the word joy in verses one through five, but believing in Jesus leads to lasting joy. That's what we're building to here at the end of the book. And I want to take you through verses 1 through 5, and I want to show you four types of joy. Four types of joy, and they, they all flow out of our faith. They are, they are all a product of our faith in Jesus Christ. Four types of joy that we have in Jesus. So let's, let's look at them. The first one, the first type of joy we experience uh, is the joy of new birth. The joy of new birth. When we put our faith in Jesus, uh, we experience the joy of the new birth. And that's where John goes first. I I didn't even finish the sentence yet, right? I've got to finish the sentence now. It's uh, verse one. Uh, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, when we believe, so what's he saying in that first sentence? He says, when we believe in Jesus, something happens. We become God's children. Right? We, we, get, we, we are born of him, is what John says. Uh, he becomes our father, we uh, become his children. This is a, a, a thing that runs through uh, John's writings, and it runs through the Scriptures. But I'll just remind you of one passage. Uh, we've noted a few times the connections between 1 John and the Gospel of John. Uh, there's definitely, you definitely see that here. Uh, back in uh, the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, we meet a man uh, named Nicodemus and uh, Nicodemus is a religious leader, and he's really curious about Jesus. He's one of those Pharisees, but he's very sympathetic to Jesus. He's curious about Jesus, but he's also kind of scared about his own reputation. So he goes to Jesus, uh, basically a secret meeting. He goes to Jesus at night. Uh, it's John chapter 3, and he asks Jesus, you know, how do well, you tell me about this kingdom of God? Tell, I'm paraphrasing, but help me understand what you're saying, Jesus. And Jesus ends up saying, one of those, you know, really core teachings of the gospel the only way for you to know God and to be a part of God's kingdom, Nicodemus, is that you need to be reborn. You need to be born again, Jesus tells Nicodemus. And so, and, and Nicodemus pushes back on that. How am I going to go back into my mother's womb? And Jesus pushes back on him. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. And so every, everybody gets a first birth, right? That's how we're here, right? If, if we're here today, we're, we always because we were physically born, but that's just step one. There's also a, a, a spiritual birth, a second birth. Uh, to be born again, uh, Jesus says. And that's what John's talking about here, right? So when he says in verse one, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, he's talking about that second birth. He's talking about being born again, right? If, 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 and the way to do that, how do we be born again? John chapter three, 1 John, John chapter five, we are born again by putting our faith in Jesus. And I want to say, if you're listening to these words right now, I hope you've done that. I hope that you have, uh, because it is the only way to, to be uh, free from our sin, to be free from the guilt and the shame and the fear. It's the only way uh, to to gain access to that eternal life, to get that eternal life that God promises us in heaven and, and even offers us as a quality of life now. We, we talk about eternal life, and eternal life is the promise of heaven after we die, but it's also... Uh, it's actually, it's also these joys that we're talking about today. These joys are part of this eternal life as well. And the way to access that, the way to get that is to put our faith in Jesus, to accept that gift. We sang about grace before. That's where the word grace means gift. And, and this is a gift that we receive. <clears throat> now, there's something that happens when we do. You know, this whole, I want to focus in on this idea of being born and especially the way John describes it for us. Because he, when we're born again, we become members of a new family. So it's the joy of the new birth, but it's also the joy of a new family. I didn't put this on the slides, but you note-takers could write that down, I suppose. It's the joy of, of a new family. And John emphasizes that here. He actually, in these in these five verses, he actually doesn't talk about forgiveness of sins and the promise of heaven. What he talks about in these verses is the promise of a new family. And and it's, it's in his language. We've been studying John together, you know, he's, he's very poetic sometimes in the way he writes and, uh, will pull in a lot of metaphors and, and he's doing that here. Uh, he, he emphasizes here in verse one, this idea that we are born of God and he uses a specific word. So if you're looking at your English translation, um, and I'm using the ESV this morning, he, he says twice there in verse one, that we are born of God. So everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And then at the end of the verse, we'll get to this in a few minutes, but at the end of the verse, he talks about whoever has been born of God, whoever's been born of him. It's the exact same word in both of those places. And it's it's interesting because the word he uses here for born, it's not the Greek word that means to give physical birth, right? So in the Gospel of Luke, when Mary gives birth to Jesus and she literally goes through labor and a little baby comes out, um that's a different word right that's the that's the greek word that describes the physical act of giving birth this word means to be the parent of someone and actually more often the father of someone and so if you read through the genealogies for example at the beginning of matthew it'll keep talking about and this one begat that one and this one begat that one it's it's that old little old-fashioned word beget that's actually the word john uses here in fact if you're looking at an older translation of the bible it may say beget instead of born and so that word beget, which John uses here, it doesn't emphasize physical birth, it emphasizes that, that parentage, that family connection. And he uses that word twice in, in this verse. Actually, full disclosure, he uses it three times, which is why I, I, it really stood out to me. Um, he uses it twice that comes through in English, but he actually uses it a third time that gets lost in English, because when he says the Father, everyone who loves the Father, that's also the word beget. It's the noun form begetter. So if you were going to be wooden in your translation, you'd say um, Jesus, everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been begotten of God, and everyone who loves the begetter loves whoever has been begotten by him. And so three times in one verse, John uses this word that accents the family connection. Right? So Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob. It's that family connection that's, that's emphasized there. And so that's what John wants us to see. He wants us to see God, this new birth, it's, it's not a physical birth, it is a spiritual birth that makes us members of God's family. We are members of a new family because of what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ and this is a source of joy right if i connect it back to that overarching purpose of this letter one it's a source of joy for us and we could talk about a lot of sources of joy about being born again and you know we've we touched on a couple of them even a few minutes ago uh, the joy of being set free from our sin the joy of being set free from guilt and so on but another one of those joys is the joy of a new family the joy of a new family you know i think like some of you As I'm, you know, folks online, folks here in the room, uh, some of you have very wonderful families, right? You have rich relationships. The connections are wonderful. They're healthy. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's it's an enjoyable sort of experience. You look forward to the holidays. You love the idea of getting together with the with the family. In fact, you'll have second Christmas and third Christmas and fourth Christmas. You love it so much. You know, you just really look forward to those family gatherings. If that's your experience, if that's your experience of earthly family that's wonderful. Now take that and multiply it when you think about what's supposed to happen and what God means to happen in the family of God. Multiply it. Uh, You know, if if, uh, you have good human parents or or maybe they're deceased and you you use the past tense, but if you had good human parents, that's great. That's what a wonderful blessing. Your heavenly father is even better. He loves you even more. His, his grace for you is even more. His unconditional acceptance of you is, 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 is full and, and without any kind of flaw. If you enjoy being with your family members, that's wonderful. Now take that as the template for what God wants you to have and what he wants you to model and what he wants you to offer in the family of God. Right, and so so those with with good healthy families wonderful, right? Sometimes I think people have this idea. Well, I don't really need the church so much. I have a good good strong extended family. No, that's supposed to be a template for for what God wants for us in the church. Others of you, right? Others of you, uh, it's not so good. Right? And I, I know so many have, have kind of struggles in, in the family life. Sometimes the relationships are strained. There's, so there's some dysfunction there going back years, maybe even some, some kind of abuse. Uh, when you think about getting together with family at the holidays, that's the worst part of the holidays for you. You love the lights and everything else and the religious part, but, oh, man, do we really have to go to that, to that party again? And that isn't to say you don't love them. Of course you love them, you love them and all that, but it's not easy. Right? That's many people's experience. Uh, these days, if that's your experience, this is good news, right? When we read in verse one that we are born into a new family, this is really good news because you have a father who loves you perfectly. Oh, he loves you perfectly. If you, you if your your mother or your father let you down or they weren't there for you, God's not like that at all. He is there for you. He's that loving loving parent you've longed for. Uh, in the church, you have a a, a family. Right? you have relatives who are given to you to help you overcome all of that brokenness and that pain that, that so many have and you know no they're not perfect I'll be the first in, in line to admit that and to say that your brothers and sisters in the church are far from perfect but Christ lives in them right? Jesus lives in them because they're born again just like you are which means they're your family and they're and they're here for you God's given you new brothers and, and sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles and, and grandparents and all the rest, the ones that you may be missed out on because of the brokenness of this, of this world. And so that's a joy, the joy of the new birth and the joy of the new family that comes with that new birth. Number two, the second type of joy we see in this text is the joy of love, the joy of love. When we put our faith in Jesus, uh, we enter into and gain access to the joy of love. And that's directly where John goes in the second half of verse one. So let me read the whole verse now. Uh, Everyone who believes, I I guess I read it before, but let's read it again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves, now he brings love into it, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now I want to... I'm going to trace John's logic this morning. Most of my sermon is built around this today. We're we're, we're going to carefully, back to my opening story about careful reading, we're going to try to carefully trace how John makes his argument in verses 1 through 5. So he starts out by talking about the new birth. Then he makes an assumption. I believe there's an assumption in the middle of verse 1. And the assumption is that we love God. He assumes that we love God. And the reason he makes this assumption, it's not, it's not a big assumption, the reason he makes it is that he just talked about it like three verses earlier. I know we're in a new chapter, but John didn't have chapters. Those were put there later. Uh, he talks about our love for God uh, back in verses 19 and 20 of the previous chapter. So if you have your Bible open, you could look at verses 19 and 20. Uh, he says, uh, back in chapter four, he says, we love because he first loved us. And you say, who do we which who who are we loving, John? Well, he tells us in the next verse. Uh, he said, we're talking about God. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he's seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. So he's talking there about our love for God. In at the end of the previous chapter, he's talking about our love for God. And because it would be if and the assumption is that we love God, it would be nonsensical to talk about the right and wrong way to love God if there wasn't an impulse there to want to love God. And so the assumption I see there in the middle of of of, of verse 1 is that we have a new birth, God has forgiven us, he's put us in a new family, and that prompts a response of love right? It prompts a response of love. It's a basic, you know, even think of a, you know, of a baby, you know, or a toddler, you know, that there's that fundamental response of love back for the parents because mom and dad love them. And so, and so you have this assumption that we love God because he's loved us, carries over from chapter four. But it doesn't stop there, right? It, It doesn't stop with our love for God. We also love God's children, And that's the one he's going to drill down on. That's the one he spells out. So everyone who loves the Father, which we talked about in chapter 4, everyone who loves the Father also loves everyone who's been born of Him. And so it's both. When we talk about the joy of love, we're, we're talking about both kinds of love. When we're born of God, we respond to this new birth by loving God and by loving God's children. That, that's what he says there in the second half of that verse. Now, I was wrestling with this this week. Maybe you're wrestling with this question right now. You, you might wonder how that is. Why would that be so? I mean, because it wouldn't have to be that way, would it? I mean, you could imagine a scenario where, where uh, you know, I, I love God, but I don't like people so much. right? You, you could imagine somebody doing that or somebody could love God and really not like their fellow believers. You could, you could imagine that. So, so why is John so insistent that they go together? Why do they go together? Why do we have to love God and love God's children? And why is it that we're a liar if we say we love God, but we don't pursue loving his, his children, our, our brothers and sisters? Why, why would he say that? Maybe, maybe this helps. Think about it this way. Imagine you're at a, a sporting event. Okay, you're at some kind of a sporting event. It's a youth sporting event. We're not talking pros. We're talking youth, youth soccer, youth track, something like that. Uh, it's here, right? Maybe it's a little league game this spring. And uh, you're there to watch your kid, right? You're there to watch your child or your grandchild. They're, they're playing in the game. They're out on the field. And so you're, you're there, and you're, you're on the sideline. You're in the stands, and you're, you're next to another parent, right? So you're there with that other parent, And his child is out there with yours, right? They're on the same team. They're out there playing each other, playing together. And uh, you you watch for a little while. Then you turn to this guy and you say, you know, I really like you. I really like you. You, I've known you a little while. You're, You're funny. You got a good sense of humor. You're just a really nice guy. I really enjoy our relationship. I really like you. But that kid of yours... What a piece of work. I mean, I mean, I don't know why Coach has him out there. He can't kick the ball to save his life. It's terrible out there. And, and even when he comes in on the sidelines, he's so mean. Did you see how mean your kid was to the other kids? He's kind of, you know, took the one kid's snack away from him. And, wow, man, I mean, you, you're a nice guy, but that kid of yours, mm, I don't know. Now, how do you think your relationship's going to go with this guy? You know, I, I, I'm thinking he's not inviting you over for barbecue this weekend. I, probably not. Why? Because he loves his kid. He loves his child. He loves his child, and, and he knows perhaps his child's faults, but it sure isn't your job to point him out. He doesn't like it when other people talk, uh, talk smack about his own children. I think God's the same way. I think that helps us get inside. It's always dangerous to try to get inside God's infinite mind, but I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. God says, "Everyone who loves the Father has to love my children. Everyone who loves the Father has to love everyone who's been born of Him." That's the rule. If you're going to love God, you need to pursue loving His His children because He loves His children. I think a lot of times we we, we have a hard time making the transfer, and so we believe, or some of us struggle to believe, but we we, we believe that God loves us, but then we 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 have a hard time getting over the hump that he loves the other person too right so i believe he loves me but i'm not so sure about you <laughs> and, and and sometimes uh, i'm not i don't really feel that way but we feel that way sometimes sometimes we have a hard time making that transfer that he loves that other person who maybe we have a hard time with just as much just as much as he loves us how does that connect to joy though say wait a minute i thought we were talking about joy what's the connection? The big picture in this little letters uh, connection. What's the connection between joy and walking in love? How would pursuing a, a love relationship for our God, but then also in in that in the context of loving one another in the, in a in a Christian kind of a way? How does that help us grow in joy? And and I think the answer, it's not maybe the only answer, but it's the one I wanted to zero in on. I think a big part of the answer is that loving other people, intentionally going after that, leads to joy by getting the focus off of ourselves. When the focus is on ourselves, it it actually undermines joy. Let me try to explain. Um, I was uh, reading an article this week. Kind of stuff that comes through a pastor's uh, email inbox I, this article came in uh, called five unsettling cultural predictions for the 2020s written by a church leader named carrie uh, newhoff i've and i've i've seen some of Newhoff's stuff in the past i think he's pretty good and so usually i i wouldn't always read an article like that because it's hard to predict the future but uh, i respect newhoff so i read this article five unsettling cultural predictions for the 2020s and uh, here was one of his predictions one of his predictions is that people will be more selfish over the next decade. Buckle your seatbelts. People are going to act even more selfishly, Newhoff suggested, over the next 10 years. Here, here's, here, here's how he put it. He connected it directly to the pandemic, and I think he's onto to something. He said, there is a looming post-pandemic surge in which people who have not been allowed to do things for over a year, two years, uh, will decide they're going to do whatever they want once all restrictions lift. Uh, You've already seen this, he says, and people breaking rules. You've seen some of this in the news. People breaking rules, hoarding, both pre- and post-pandemic, Jumping vaccine lines. I know not everybody's been excited about the vaccine, but there have been stories that just kind of make your jaw drop of people kind of sneaking in to get a vaccine and uh, sneaking their kids in when they weren't eligible, some of these kinds of things. Uh, Bidding up house prices, booking vacations, boats, bikes, campsites, SUVs, or anything else they've fixed their hearts on to make sure they get what they want. He goes on, as you've probably already realized, self-centered people are often angry people which makes selfishness doubly tricky to deal with. Just search the comments on any website or on social media for evidence of that. That doesn't sound very joyful, does it? Right? A, a, a selfish decade does not sound like a, a, a joyful decade. Self-centered people are very often angry people. I, I don't know how his predictions are going to pan out, but he's spot on with that observation. Self-centered people are very often angry people. Uh, We have this idea in our culture. You've heard it. You've seen it. We have this idea that if we put ourselves first, we'll be happy, right? That's the path to happiness. Look out for number one. Take care of yourself. But the reality, the reality, and you see it all over the place in scripture, the reality is exactly the opposite from what the world says. The reality is that those who put themselves first are often the most unhappy people. They're often the most unhappy people in the world. Meanwhile, people who are giving themselves away for others, who are focused on loving other people, they tend to be more joyful. Go ahead and test that. You know, test, just think about the people you know. Watch, your, watch how things unfold even for you this week. Uh, why? Because those people are plugging into the joy of, of putting the needs of other people ahead of themselves, just like Jesus did. Right They're following his model. We actually talked about this back in chapter 3, I think it was, but it might have been early in chapter 4. And so those who believe in Jesus are born of God, and, uh, and those who are born of God love, Right, tracing John's logic. Uh, those who are born of God love, they love God, and they love God's children. That's the second type of joy we see here, the joy of love. The third type of joy that we experience when we come to faith in Jesus is the joy of obedience, the joy of obedience. And this is where John goes next, right? He goes to talk about obedience in verses two and three. He says, I'll pick up in verse two now. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So verses 2 and 3 are answering a question. They're answering a question for us. And the question is, what do you mean, God, when you tell us to love one another? Excuse me, what kind of love are you talking about? <laughs> what do you mean, Lord? Uh, and now, I, I started out this morning with that little story about the importance of reading carefully. And now this is where we really start to see it. You know, for I've got to tell you, when I was studying this passage this week, I spent a lot of time just looking at these verses, going, "What is going on here?" Because you wonder how they're connected sometimes. But then I just kind of spent some time diagramming it and breaking it into little pieces. And, and what I realized is there's actually a very careful progression in this paragraph there's a progression that John is sketching out for us here. And I've actually given that to you on the outlines. So if you um, have that bulletin outline in your sermon at the bottom half of the outline, I've actually given you this progression. It's embedded in the the sermon notes link on the Bible app for those who like to use that. It was too much to put on a slide, but you can see it in your bulletins if you want to see this progression that's in this text. But but let's trace his logic. So it it starts with the new birth, verse 1. Those who believe in Jesus are born of God. That new birth leads to love, second half of verse 1, right? That that love that we just talked about. Verses 2 and 3, this love leads to obedience, or it manifests in obedience. And so those who love God and love God's children live that out by obeying God's commands, which means, and we're just, again, we're just tracing John's logic here. It means that obeying God Here's a connection we don't always make. Obeying God is an act of love. So when we ask our question, uh, what kind of love are you talking about, God? God says, I'm talking about obeying me. Obeying God is not just the right way to live, which, you know, maybe the the book of Proverbs would talk a lot about, but obeying God is the loving way to live. That's the case John is making. Obeying God is the loving way to live, which means the opposite is also true. That's definitely the case here. Uh, Disobeying God is the unloving way to live. and So obeying God is loving, disobeying God is unloving. That's the case he's making here. And and I think the best way to see this is to just think through some examples. Uh, For example, one of the reasons gossip is sinful is that gossip is unloving. I do ever think it's a, you know we we know gossip is a sin but why is gossip a sin? Well, gossip is a sin because it takes information that we have about somebody or that we think we have about somebody. Sometimes it's not even true, but we take information we have about somebody and we weaponize it, right? We take that information that's maybe we maybe was confided to us, maybe we've heard it secondhand. We take that information and we turn it into a, a weapon or a tool to either make that other person look bad or to make ourselves look good. And sometimes it's a combination of the two. That's fundamentally unloving, right? It's it's fundamentally unloving to to gossip. Um, Uncontrolled anger, right? There's such a thing as a righteous anger, but uncontrolled anger, it's unloving, right? It's it's unloving. When we unload on someone, whether it's a stranger at the store or, you know, our spouse, when we unload on someone who hasn't even done anything, that's unloving to make that person bear the brunt of, of our frustration or our anger. Lust is unloving, right? Why, why does God tell us not to lust? Lust is unloving. It is not a loving thing to do to consume another person with our eyes or, or to use that, that person's body like, like a commodity, right? A commodity to satisfy our own desires. Stealing, stealing, theft is, is unloving in all of its various forms, whether you're talking about shoplifting or cheating on your taxes or whatever. It's, it's unloving, right? Because it takes something that belongs to someone else. Right? And Sometimes we'll say, well, I need it more than they do. right? Yeah. Uh, it's, need doesn't factor into it. It is theirs. It's their rightful property or that company's rightful property. And to deprive them of what is theirs, that's actually why it's one of the Ten Commandments, is, is fundamentally an unloving thing to do. And so those are just some examples to help, uh, it helps me anyway, to see how uh, disobedience to God is is settled in the context of of love and and well in this case of being unloving. And so if we're going to do the loving thing, the, back to John's argument, and again, we're members of a family now that's committed to love, so if we're going to do the loving thing toward one another and toward God, then the way that works out is walking in obedience to God's commandments. That's what he means when he says love. Now, what does that have to do with joy? back to joy. Why, why, how does obedience lead to joy? Because that, that, now each of these connections seems a little hard, a little more tenuous to us. Uh, I, I mean, I, yeah, I get it. God wants me to obey. Uh, I, I, that's, that's probably not a new concept for most of us. But how does obeying God lead us to joy? And I think one answer to that question is that obedience to God frees us from the burdens of disobedience. I think this is one of the really good ones. When we sin we are depriving ourselves of joy. When we sin, we are depriving ourselves of the joy God means for us to have. That's why a book about joy, chapter 1, verse 4, focuses so much on obeying God and doing what God tells us to do. Disobedience deprives ourselves of joy. And again, I think the best way to see this is just to look at specific instances. Uncontrolled anger. Right? I used that one a moment ago. Uncontrolled anger it hurts our relationships, right? It damages those relationships. And, and so if we're in the habit, you know I mean? We're all sinners, and it's all going to happen. But, but if we're in this habit of, of venting our anger on our family members or on our friends, over time, and sometimes it doesn't take too much time, over, but, but over time, that anger really undermines the joy that we're supposed to have in that friendship or in that, that relationship. Right? Why? Because now instead of joy, that relationship becomes characterized by tension. Right? You're, you know, your, your spouse is, one, is walking on eggshells all the time, wondering, well, you know, if, if you're going to blow up again, or if, if, this, is, if this is romantic day. Or, you know, I mean, it, it, it's that kind of it. In so uncontrolled anger over time undermines, it undermines the joy that we're meant to have in these friendships and in these relationships. And again, it would, it, I think it works this way with most sins. Lust. Deprives us of the joy of of dignity, right? Our own dignity, and and secondarily that other person's dignity too, right? Women or men become objects of our desires rather than human beings created in the object, in the image of God, and and so we end up depriving ourselves of our own dignity when we enter into that, and we end up feeling dirty and ashamed, right? And that which is very much the opposite of joy, greed, greed, envy, stealing, all those kind of things. They they. Altogether, together, they, they fill us with discontentment, right? And there's not a lot of joy in, in discontentment. Gossip hurts our reputation. Maybe we get a little bump for being one of the people in the know at the beginning, but over time, we become known as someone who can't be trusted. There's not much joy in that. And, and so the point is, disobedience is costly. You see that all throughout scriptures. Uh, my own, the Bible planning reading I'm doing right now has me in the middle of Proverbs. And yeah, boy, you just see it over and over and over disobedience is costly in all kinds of ways. And those consequences of our sin deprive us. They deprive us of the joy God means for us to have, which means the opposite is going to be true. So if disobedience deprives us of joy, then obedience magnifies our joy. It adds to our joy. We will be more joyful. Back to that purpose of the letter. We'll be more joyful if we obey God like he calls us to do. And that brings us to the last one, the fourth type of joy we see here in this paragraph. The fourth type of joy is the joy of victory. And it flows right out of the obedience one, the joy of victory. Uh, John says something uh, a little surprising, and I, I purposely didn't read it before, but it's in verse 3. It's there at the end of verse 3. And I think it's a little surprising. He says, and his commandments are not burdensome. Right? For this is the love of God, I'm going to define it for you, that we keep his commandments, John says, and his commandments aren't burdensome. And I think John knows that we don't think that way. He knows it probably because he struggled with it himself. He's human just like us, right? You know, we, we tend to look, there's a tendency in the human heart to look at the commandments of God and go, oh my man, that's hard. That's hard, right? That's difficult. We tend to see obedience as a struggle, we, we do tend to see obedience as a burden. And so John pushes back on that, the last part of verse 3. He says, uh, we need to obey God. That's how we love one another. And oh, by the way, God's commandments, they're not even burdensome. His commandments aren't even burdensome. And, and that's actually why I was talking about the joy of obedience. I think he tells us right there in the verse that it's not, they're not burdensome. They're joyful instead. But then he gives us the why. Why? Wait a minute, what do you mean, John? What do you mean God's commandments aren't burdensome? He says, well, let me tell you what I mean. Uh, it's verse 4. God's commandments are not burdensome because everyone who's been born of God, and you see what he does there? He reaches back now to where we were in the start of this, this logical progression. So he takes us back to the, the, the top line there, if you were looking at the bulletin. Uh, everyone who's been born of God, everyone who's born again, overcomes the world. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ overcomes the world, he says. And so it's another step in that, that progression. Uh, those who believe in Jesus are born of God. Those who are born of God love. Those who love uh, obey God's commands. Those who obey his commands, they're going to overcome in that. We're going we're to be able to do it. We overcome the world. Now you got to remember what John means by the world. Got to remember what he means. Uh, we've talked about this a few times in this series, but we'll uh, clock it again. Uh, the world in First John means the system. So it's not the people, right? It's a different use of the word world from what you get in, well, John three sixteen. God so loved the world. What he loves there are the people of the world, but that's not what John means here. So when he says the world overcomes the world, he doesn't mean your next door neighbor. Uh, he means the world system that stands in defiance to God. So I always think of the world, the world system. That's that whole, it's the systems, and it is people. Sometimes it's manifested, in, it manifests through people, but it's, it's the devil, it's, it's his angels, it's, it's all of them. And they're all standing, shaking a defiant fist at the God of heaven and earth. It, it, that's the, how the world in this sense is presented. And John says, we overcome that. We overcome, we have the victory over it. Uh, another one of those interesting word things John does here, Uh, You'll appreciate this verse more if you understand that the word overcome is the verb form of the word victory. And so, uh, again, he's got all this repetition, which accents his point. Everyone who's been born of God, verse 4, has victory over the world, and this is the victory that has victory over the world. It's our faith. And who is it that has victory over the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And you see what he does there. Uh, Another question we would have reading through this is, how does that work? How do I have victory over the world? And John says, you have victory over the world through your faith in Jesus Christ. And so he takes us back. uh, Verse 5 and verse 1, they're they're like in parallel, right? Our victory is our faith in Jesus. And so verse 1, he starts with, everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ... Verse 5, everyone who believes Jesus is the Son of God. And the words aren't exactly the same, but it's the same idea. Believing what the Bible teaches about Jesus, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And so if we ask, how do I walk in obedience? What does it look like to have victory over this world system that rebels against God and everything that's good? The answer is we do it through our faith in Jesus. It's our faith in Jesus. It's not willpower. It's not even being raised in a great family, although that certainly helps. It's not going to a great church, which also certainly helps, but it's our faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we have victory over, over the world, over that system, over that rebellion. How does that work? John leaves us with lots of gaps we got to fill in sometimes from, from different parts of the letter. How does that work? How does our faith in Jesus Give us victory. And I think, as I was pouring over this, I think the answer is the Holy Spirit. It goes back to the new birth. So, what happens when we're born again? God does a miracle. God, the Holy Spirit, comes and does a miracle. We call it regeneration. He takes our spiritually dead selves, to take language from Paul, he takes that which is spiritually dead on the inside, he does a miracle. We call it, again, it's a doctrine of regeneration. We are born again, we become alive on the inside where we used to be dead. And the Holy Spirit himself, the third person of the Trinity, takes up residence. He moves in. He he takes up residence within us. Which means because of our new birth, because of our new birth, God himself now lives within us. That's where the power and the will and the desire and the strength and the conviction that brings us back, that's where it all comes from. It comes from the Holy Spirit who lives within us. You know, left to ourselves, we would just keep chasing after sin. We would just, every, every one of us, me, you, all of us, we would just keep, if, if you didn't have, if we didn't have the Holy Spirit within us, we would just, we would, we would dive into that world system like a pig dives into mud. I mean, that's just, in our flesh, that's what we would want. But now, because of the new birth, because we've put our faith in Jesus, because we're born again, now the Holy Spirit lives within us, and he doesn't let us. All right, so we're like, you know, I kind of like the mud, and the Holy Spirit's like, no, you don't. You don't like it, and I don't like it either. So, come back, come come, come out of the mud. And that, that's it's, it's actually it's called conviction. Sometimes people will press on us as Christians to say, "Oh, you people have a guilt problem." No, we have a conviction problem. Except it's not a problem; it's a good thing because it's the work of the Holy Spirit saying, "Come back, come back." That's not what that's not my best for you. That's not what we what Jesus died on the cross for. And so the difference is the Holy Spirit. That's where the victory comes from. And all of that leads to joy. It leads to joy, and again, we could think about this from so many angles. But I would just even what John does here is in terms of how we think about ourselves. That word victory that I mentioned Uh, before—I don't know if any of you struggle with this. Not everybody does, but many people do. A lot of believers really kind of struggle with their image of themselves. You know, the sense that we're we're not enough, that we're insufficient, maybe even that we're losers. You know, I don't know how harsh your, your inner voice can get, but, you know, this idea that we're, we're losers. And, but, but God says, you're not a loser. Look what he says in verses 4 and 5. He says, you're a victor. You're a winner, right? The world tells us we're losers. They keep telling us, you know, we're on the wrong side of history and whatever else. God says, you're not a loser. You're a victor. You're a winner. Why? Because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Because uh, you are born again. You have overcome the world through your faith. Through your faith in Jesus Christ. I have a a video clip I want to show you this morning. This is uh, how I'm going to end. Actually, I'll come back and pray in in just a moment. But um, I have a a testimony from somebody in our own church. Uh, A few weeks ago, um, one of our our folks, uh, Sonia Smith, uh, sent me an email and she actually wanted to engage on an issue from 1 John. So it was, there was kind of a question, but also just sharing with me from her own experience. Because what she shared was that God has used First John in her life. It's actually a big part of her testimony. You ever have that? You know, different people have different books in the Bible or something, something like that that God really uses. And for Sonia, there was the season in her life in the past when she was really wandering from the Lord, and God really used First John to bring her back to himself. And, and she was just sharing that with me a little bit. And we went back and forth on, really on, on the issue we've talked about. It comes up a little bit today, but it's come up a few times in the book. The the tension between obedience and salvation, right? And we were actually just talking about it. as We were talking about victory and obedience. Um, if, if I'm saved, why do I still struggle to obey? And, and how am I able to obey? And, and so we were, we were talking about that. In the end, I asked her if she'd be willing to share with us, with us as a church, uh, just a A short part of her her own testimony she very graciously said thank you Sonia she's actually not in the room today I think she's traveling but she probably is watching online thank you for sharing with us and uh, I'm I'm just gonna have these guys play this in just a moment but I I want you to watch for two things as you listen to this little clip Um, she's gonna talk about uh, obedience right and how the Lord is giving her victory so I wanted to share this here because I think it's an example of what we just talked about the Holy Spirit within bringing to a place of victory but it's also joy and some of you know Sonia Joy, kind of, she's, she's a pretty joyful person, thanks to Jesus, and and I, I think you'll see the joy that we were just talking about as well. This was a great place to be able to share that. So if if you guys could uh, go ahead and play that, and then I will I will come back and pray. All right, so Sonia, thank you for taking a couple of minutes here. Yes. Um, we were talking about how John in this letter, first John, has helped us work through as a church and just as individuals the tension between. Being saved and secure in our salvation, knowing our Father loves us, Jesus accepts us just as we are, yeah. and yet we're called away from our sin. When uh, we want to abide in Him, we stop sinning, what it says in, yeah. in 1 John. So, you, would, you and I have been talking, you'd actually emailed me, and I wonder if you could just share a little bit from your own testimony about how God has used First John in the past, not necessarily yeah. this series, but just how He's used it in your life.
1: Yeah, well, like I said, um, I uh, was talking with a friend of mine. We were going over the, can you lose your salvation, once saved, always saved, were you saved in the first place? And I've always said yes, <laughs> you know, but in that moment I stopped and I realized mm-hmm. that that wasn't my answer, or that was my answer, not God's. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was um, when I was in my sexual sin um, and coming back to, to my faith, as I would say, um, I read First John several times Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it convicted me Mm -hmm. because the one person there that says if you are with God you no longer sin and I was stuck in this sexual sin for years and years battling myself day in and day out and just trying to figure why God (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um I realized that I was trying to fulfill my deepest desire of wanting to be married through that sex. And finally, when I finally gave up that desire to be married and surrendered that to God, he filled me Mm. and that went away. And it was just an awesome feeling, (laughs) you know? Um, I don't know. Yeah. I just, like I said, I questioned my faith. Right because I was sinning and in John it says when you're in faith if you walk with if you have fellowship with God yeah. and say that you, and you're living in darkness you are being a liar and I'm like I don't want to be called a liar. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so um, it just made me there was a lot of questions that I brought yeah. up and so listening to it over and go over again it just really battle but God's answer to me in regards to salvation was it doesn't matter what's in the past. It's how you live going forward. And so that's what I do. I know I still sin. I know, you know, but I admit it readily. You know, I admit my faults, Mm -hmm. I hope. And if I don't, I hope people show them to me. (laughs) But other than that, yes. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. All right.
0: Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It's new. That's the scripture's message. It's a new, uh, it's all new. It's a new start. It's a new life. It's, it's new creation, new joy. Uh, we get all that and more when we put our faith in Jesus. I am going to close in prayer, but before I do, I, I just want to ask, do you have that? Do you have that? Do you know Jesus? Have you given your life to him? You know, some of us, we keep running, and I appreciated uh, Sonia's transparency with that. We, we keep running from, from the Lord. Uh, And we need to give ourselves over to him. We need to do that. And and I I just want you to know this morning, as I close, that uh, God offers you joy. He invites you into that. he's, He's not pushing you away. He's pulling you in. The Father offers you the joy that we've talked about this morning. And it's worth it. Like anyone who's made the exchange will tell you that it's worth it. He is worth the exchange. Because what he offers us, even these things we've talked about this morning, and in my, my frailty, I, I, I've tried to, you know, I feel like I've, there's this glorious brightness behind me, and I've maybe opened it up this much so you could see it. It's so wonderful. Uh, you know, there's no comparison between what we give up to come to Jesus and what we gain. It's like comparing a, a, a penny to a mountain of gold. There's just no comparison. So, do you have it? Do you have that joy that we talked about, that, that she testified to? Have you given your life to Jesus? I'm going to lead in prayer, and if you'd like to, if you've never done that and you'd like to, or if you have, but you've been running away, maybe you resonate with that part of, of her testimony, um, I'm going to, you have opportunity to pray even now as I lead us in prayer, and so I will kind of walk through that sort of a prayer, and then I will, I'll close for the rest of us, and the worship team will come back up and, and, uh, and close us out. So would you pray with me, please? Lord, I, um, I just do pray uh, for and with anyone in the room right now who, uh, or, or watching online now or later, uh, who says, yeah, that's me. I, I've, I've been running or I've never even come to Jesus in the first place. Forget running from him. I've, I've never come to him in the first place, but I see that I, I need to, I see that I want to, uh, Lord, I, I pray for, for those in that position, um, would invite them to pray with me that, lord i am a sinner i need you i've deprived myself of joy but i want what you you offer to me i believe what the bible says about jesus i believe he's the son of god i believe he died on the cross for me i believe he rose again from the dead three days later and i surrender i commit my life to you now lord I pray that you would be my savior. I accept this gift. And I thank you as I uh, receive your forgiveness now.